Welcome to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. Miss Dini DeCormier, uh, VTS Oncology. Hey, girl. Hello. <laughs> and then uh, we got Jenny Fisher, VTS Oncology as well. What's up? <laughs> What's up? Hey, girl. Hey. Hey. Uh, so these two lovely ladies are BTS's oncology because we're doing our oncology series and um, I'm not that smart. I mean, I, I'm like oncology adjacent in my hospital, so <laughs> but that doesn't mean I know all the stuff about this these different diseases. Although this one is kind of fun because I've definitely been there for diagnosing and I've been part of surgery to remove them. Ooh. And I don't know if you guys talk about it, but um, I have helped with ECT on these guys. Uh, kind of cool. There's a little note <laughs> in there. I have never actually performed <laughs> ECT, so there's not a lot in there. So if you want to jump in, you might. Actually- I'll just tell you from what the heck it looks like. <laughs> okay. They're like, wait, so, what is ECT? We'll get there. I know. We'll get there. I promise. <laughs> Um, so I think just as a quick reminder, we're working on getting these race approved. Um, they are not approved yet. Unfortunately, we're getting there. Um, and you can definitely use these as self-study for a lot of things (laughs) and just, you know, expanding your brain. So this week we're going to talk about the Agasaka because that's how we, we, uh, discuss Describe it at work. And I'm going to let you say the whole word. <laughs> right. And I'm not going to lie. So I think when I started oncology, I only knew it as, and I'm going to show my Midwest, my Agasaka. Um, oh, all right, <laughs> right? All right. But I had no idea. I'm like, it's a lot of, it's a lot of words. So I only know it as this, but it's the African gland anal sac adenocarcinoma. Ooh. And right. So it's so long. And I did already ask Yvonne earlier if I could say what we actually call it, which is <laughs> not entirely appropriate, uh, but it rhymes with mass. And you might say hear it in your hospital if you have oncology. I'm just saying it's there. But so this affects yep, obviously yep. <laughs> the, the anal sac or the anal glands. So I figured I would kind of backtrack a minute. So the adenocarcinoma part, because we kind of start these assuming, you know, what those different types of tumors are. And so I just Mm. backed this one up a minute. So, you know, that is a cancer that forms in the glandular tissue that lines certain internal organs, right? So those anal sacs, anal glands, that is all in that rectal area that has all that beautiful lining and fun things in there. So that's going to be one of our adenocarcinomas. So when we mix that together, we are looking at a malignant tumor that arises from the apocrine glands in the wall of the anal sac. So this does account for about 2% of all skin tumors, but 17% of all perianal tumors in the dog. I do mention this a little later. It's really rare in cats. I've never seen this in cats. I don't think I've seen this in cats at all. Um, 
yeah i was like oh yeah. i haven't i think it'd be one of those things where everybody would be like dude <laughs> i'm pretty sure i find I that found. on facebook somewhere right someone right. commenting guess what i saw but yeah it <laughs> right. is, uh yeah. definitely more of a tumor that we do see in our dogs I'm actually surprised it's only 17% of perianal tumors. Like I, I, I I'm what, what other perianal tumors are there? Perianal adenomas. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Perianal this, carcinomas. Maybe I just say, lump them all together. <laughs> of all of them, including the benign ones. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> So if you think all about right. the nine things that can happen, but truly mixed in with all of that, it's still 17% of everything that can happen as far as any type of tumor in that area. All the, the butt stuff. All the- <laughs> <laughs> We're allowed to say that. That's not okay. like oh, R-rated. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Oh, okay. All right. All right. All right. I'm picking up what you're putting down on the that makes sense though. When you, when you throw benign tumors in there too. So, okay. Um, but I am going to let Jenny talk far more about them and how I behave, what they do. And then, uh, I get to chime back in with what your owners are going to start to tell you about the butt stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, these are extremely locally invasive and highly metastatic tumors. And it's actually in a lot of the literature stated that, you know, uh, approximately, um, I'm sorry, that locally invasive and highly metastatic, but actually there's a high probability that these tumors have already actually metastasized at the time of diagnosis, um, which is pretty scary, right? Because even if we find that local tumor and can gain local control, if that tumor has already metastasized or spread somewhere distantly throughout the body, um, we can see certain um, negative prognostic indicators associated with that. So when we talk about survival time with this tumor, we can see really good survival times actually. Um, With surgery and chemotherapy, we can see anywhere from one to three and a half years in the literature or about 400 to 700 days. So we can actually do really, this is one of those tumors we can actually do some really good stuff with. Typically the biggest prognostic indicators are going to be treatment received. Uh, the size of the Mm. tumor, if there is hypercalcemia present at the time of diagnosis. So hypercalcemia, that's one of those paraneoplastic syndromes. And what that is by definition is a metabolic alteration within the body that's caused or secondary from the tumor, but isn't necessarily located close to the tumor anatomically. So it can be something like blood, um, blood work abnormalities. It can also be um, a proliferation of the bone like we see in hypertrophic osteopathy. So a perineoplastic syndrome is also oftentimes why that patient presents um, to the hospital. And so we can see that a lot with our anal sac tumor patients because of that hypercalcemia. So they become very PPD. They're going out to go to the bathroom a lot. And that's why mom and dad bring them in, right? Then we run blood yeah. work. We find the high calcium. Then we go on the Easter egg hunt for what's causing the high calcium, right? So, and that is like the biggest reason why internal medicine (laughs) sees these patients. It's like they come in with like elevated uh, calcium. We run in like ice stack and ionized calcium. Yeah. And I mean, part of our, part of our physical is a hundred percent doing a rectal. And so we're like, yup, 
you know, it's like most of them go to you guys. <laughs> yeah. Every once in a while they stay with us, but most yeah. of the times it's like, oh, there it is. Yeah. You get to do that hogs in yard thing quite a bit. <laughs> you know, the, the reasons for hypercalcemia of malignancy, yep. you talk, go through all of those differentials, right? But yeah, you guys get yeah. to see um, certainly a lot of the Easter egg hunts when they come to you with just, Hey, we found this calcium now. What do we do? Right. Yep. <laughs> um, and so, you know, a lot of these kids will present originally because of, um, clinical signs associated maybe with their hypercalcemia because they are PUPD. They can also present because they're chewing, scooting, licking kind of at their hind end. These can also be those kids that have um, uh, chronic, um, anal gland or anal sac issues, right? These are those ones that come in all the time. So we talk in cancer biology about chronic inflammation leading to DNA damage and mm. potentially leading to tumors growing. So we can certainly see that within the anal sac as well. Uh, in the older literature, it was thought, and I actually, I looked a lot of this up today. Um, so in some of the older literature, some of the older papers that were out there, it was thought that females were a little bit higher represented. Um, but hmm. some of the newer literature out within the last two to five years is actually suggesting that maybe it's a little bit more equally split uh, between mm. males and females, but we are typically seeing it in much older dogs, again, rare in kitty cats, but it can happen. I read a paper just before we got on um, about um, a case in a uh, cat that actually had brain metastasis. So that was a pretty interesting case. Not good for the kitty cat. Um, but so again, very rare, but, but has been reported um, in the literature. German shepherds, cocker spaniels, dachshunds, uh, malinois, uh, and English springer spaniels may be predisposed <clears throat> um, to um, development of these tumors, but certainly can affect any breed. Uh, like we mentioned a little bit ago, um, a lot of times those patients present for maybe some other type of clinical sign, maybe a perineoplastic syndrome associated. And a lot of times these tumors are found incidentally, right? So that's mm. not actually what they were there looking for. They might be there because they are PUPD, but the the butt mass or the anal sac mass um, tends to be the reason that they found for that. It can also be found during things. So uh, groomers are a big one for finding this. This is also those patients that come in to have their anal sacs expressed multiple times, right? These are those patients. And this is why we want to make sure that when we are expressing those anal sacs, we are getting them good and fully expressed. And if you can't, right? We want to make sure that we measure that, that we monitor that and have those patients come back in. We certainly don't want to be like, well, I think I got it all the way expressed, but there's still this hard thing in there, but we'll see. In oh, six months, yeah. Right? Not what we want to do. We certainly want to make sure that we monitor that area as well. It could also I think, be, I think ahead. one thing with that is veterinary technicians are the ones doing anal gland expression appointments all the time. Right. And so I think this is one of those places where we can make a really big difference is, you know, writing down what, what, you know, what you're feeling. And also just, if it feels unusual or if it still feels like thickened or anything like that, make sure you let your doctor know, don't just be like, Absolutely. Oh yeah, it's just, you know, some swelling and, and just kind of brush it off. Because I think, you know, you kind of mentioned it in your prognostics where, you know, these have already spread. And I wonder how many of them just aren't being picked up because 
it's quote unquote normal for this dog and we're not investigating as soon as we should that and rectal exams aren't a common practice for every single doctor like I feel like we find these giant masses in these patients and we're like when's the last time anybody did a rectal exam on this patient so or have they ever or have they ever yeah and I think we could soapbox on that for, you know, <laughs> a long time because there's so much information and yeah. they have such a good quality of life after treating these that, yeah. Okay. I'll stop. Absolutely. Well, <laughs> no, no. And you're right. Right. Like, and this is one of those tumors that the sooner we can catch it, right. The smaller these tumors are, the better chance we're going to have at getting long-term local control and long-term survival. Um, which is obviously ideally the goal, right? So like I mentioned, a lot of those have metastasized already at the time of diagnosis, which is a little bit scary. Um, some of the complications that we worry about with this, I worked for an oncologist. If he's listening to this, he's going to die. Um, but we used <laughs> to have um, the rules of cancer medicine um, posted in the oncology suite. And the first one was cancer does what cancer wants. Second was cancer yeah. doesn't take American Express. Um, and the third one was, if you can't poop and pee, you die. Um, and oh. as much as that is a bummer, right? That's huge. You have to be able to eliminate waste, right? Yeah, that's part of our normal body function. And so when these patients aren't able to eliminate properly, we obviously get into a big time medical emergency. 25 to 90% of cases can actually present with that hypercalcemia. It's it's uh, thought to be associated to PTHRP um, and uptake in PTHRP. So when we talk about um, other possible tumors of this area, where we talked about that, what we thought was 17%, which may have been a lower percent of all of these, of these uh, perianal tumors, we have to take into account things like perianal adenomas, right? Which are very, very common in older male intact dogs that are cured with neutering, right? We also see um, anal sac or anal carcinomas. I had a personal dog actually die of, of an anal sac carcinoma. It was awful. Um, it didn't, it did not follow the rules. It did what it wants. It did not, um, biologically behave, uh, like an anal sac adenocarcinoma. Um, we can also have, um, infected or impacted anal sacs, right? So that's something else that we would have to, um, differentiate between, but as you mentioned, you know, technicians out there as you're doing these exams, and I put this in at the end, but I used to ask my veterinary students, when they would come on oncology rotation, what was the only reason they were to ever give me if they didn't perform a rectal exam in a dog? And the correct answer was if the dog doesn't have a butt. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh my so, God, so true. <laughs> so, you know, really technicians get out there, um, start doing your rectal exams and talk up and learn how you can help um, impact these cases. Um, and then some of the other diagnostics to go along with it. Danny's going to take you into that. Sure am. And I definitely cannot stress enough the impaction anal gland impaction. Mm. I have definitely had patients come in where they say it's a tumor. We do all this. And we actually realize that it's impacted. Um, it's oh. just severe Woo. and it amazingly <laughs> hasn't like ruptured or been infected, but I think it was just one of those times where, you know, 
They did their rectal exam at the GP. Owners were worried, pulled the trigger, said, got to get this off sooner and hadn't done like an aspirate or anything. So when, when we did, mm, there were things and they were not cancerous. So um, let me tell you that does not sit well with oncologists. It's a little gross for their world. Uh, they don't get very excited <laughs> so for that. That's usually when they look at, you know, us and say, um, so you can go ahead and take care of the rest of that, right? I'm going to go talk to the owner. So that's when the technicians so step in. So when we look at diagnosing this, honestly, it is either a internal medicine <laughs> coming over and saying, yep. we found hypercalcemia, which is funny because they came in for symptoms and we found it on rectal exam first before the right. results came back because we knew it was there. So, but yeah. we are going to always do lab work on these guys, um, whether or not they come in with it, especially we might actually repeat it depending on when it was done specifically, if they are already showing signs of hypercalcemia or they just started since they had it, because we want to see exactly what level we're at to make sure things aren't getting yeah. worse, um, to see if they're standing still to see if they need to be hospitalized for that. So we want that minimum database and then to monitor our calcium as well. We do want to do imaging with these guys and it is going to be a lot of imaging because it can move all the way from our butt to our lungs. And so, yeah. or in the case of that cat, even to our brain, it, it can spread a lot of places. Um, it does readily, metastasize to the lungs. So taking three views of our chest x-rays for sure. For staging, we want to do an abdominal ultrasound because the other place, this goes to the draining lymph nodes. So this goes to our sub lumbar lymph nodes and Mm -hmm. that happens quite a bit. And so you can only see those on ultrasound. You cannot always get a sample because of where those are located to do like an FNA to test for metastasis. So it is a great idea to do that abdominal ultrasound first to know if when we're going in surgically to remove that, oh, we know that we're going to have to go in and also remove those uh, metastatic lymph nodes because we do want to do that. Um, Because we just, we want to remove them (laughs) for sure. This is also one of those masses that you could do a CT scan instead, since you're going to be looking um, at the whole body, it can give you a good idea, especially surgeons would like this. If it's a bigger tumor, it can tell them better um, how surgery, if it's even possible to remove it surgically, or if it's kind of beyond what they can do without causing a really horrible quality of life. Like Jenny said, if you can't eliminate, you've got some problems. So we want to make sure that we're not causing more problems with that. So a CT scan for our larger tumors might be the way to go just because we'd be able to see everything. How invasive it is. And right. How invasive it is. See if they can see the lymph nodes. If they're enlarged, we can use contrast to kind of light everything up and then look in the lungs as well to see if there is metastasis there. It gives us that beautiful whole picture. But before we even jump into that, we can actually FNA these guys. We can get a needle sample. Uh, Sometimes they need sedation because of the location that we're in and they generally need to be standing, which it's a little harder to hold them when they're standing up and you're messing in an area that they don't, uh, readily enjoy being messed with. (laughs) They can't see you. They just, you know, so it's okay. Some of them need sedation. Not all of them though. Um, cause you know, dogs are just, we don't deserve them sometimes. They're so fabulous, but (laughs) whenever we find a mass there, even if it's small, 
trying to get a sample of that is always going to be a great idea before going and doing anything. And as Jenny mentioned, measuring. We definitely want to measure these so that even if we know if surgery is on a later date or say they started internal medicine, they took a measurement, mm. got in to see oncology, we did the rest, we've got a measurement to know is this thing growing rapidly because surgery is going to want to know that before they go in to get that mass out. And so then when we're looking at this, obviously technicians, we can and I recommend looking at these under the microscope and getting used to seeing if you've got a diagnostic sample. Obviously we're not making the diagnosis as a technician, but we can tell if those are viable cells and what kind of cells they are to know, mm. uh-oh, this might actually be a malignant tumor. So these mm. have a neuroendocrine appearance, um, which are like the nerve cells, hormone producing cells. Um, these guys have fewer malignant criteria though. So it is sometimes harder to differentiate if that is malignant or not, but making sure that your cells are viable are a great way to have a pathologist tell you whether or not it is <laughs> actually right. malignant. So they're fabulous. Histology is going to be our gold standard, obviously. So once we've figured out what we're dealing with, we've done the imaging that we need to do to make sure that if it's spread to lymph nodes, we're going for them. If it's to the lungs, we can still do surgery. We just know we do have to follow that up. Um, but there is a protein that's found on epithelial cells and that's the cytokeratin and they'll be positive for that. There aren't really too many special tests that need to be done, uh, because we can actually just differentiate this on that histology. But as both of you have, have said that rectal exam is super important. Mm. I feel like oncology is the number one place that every animal gets a rectal exam, no matter what um, <laughs> it happens to my number two I'm, is so, internal medicine. Right? Because, I mean, I, my doctor used to, you know, look at my dog to give vaccines. I'm not going to lie. We were close. It's what would happen. Oh, rectal every time. He's like, why would I not do one? I went, you're right. I don't know. <laughs> So absolutely. And then they go in school, the ER service, if they ever get a transfer through ER, especially our hypercalcemia kids that oh, yeah. was a rectal done. Did you do one? And I know that has been ingrained in all of them. It's so rare to see any of our emergency doctors not do one at this point um, right. because they know that they can find a surprise. Cause like we said, a third of these are an incidental finding, so they could easily find it there. And I mean, we're looking at more than just our anal sacs when they're doing a rectal exam. It's so much information, like you said, right? So they can feel the prostate, the urethra, stool consistency, which is going to be a big one too. Um, and then those sacral lymph nodes can be felt and they are occasionally enlarged as well. Um, they are part of that group of sublumbar lymph nodes. So it, mm. sometimes you can already feel if those are enlarged just by that rectal exam. And then of course, always making sure that that sack is actually empty and so that it's a mass and not full of all the fun goo that it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And I mean, once, once we figure that out and figure out what it is, then we're going to go ahead and look at treatment, right? So most of the time, this is going to be outpatient unless they show up with severe hypercalcemia. And so as Jenny said, that was 25 to 90% can have hypercalcemia. It is in competition with lymphoma to be the number one cancer that we see with hypercalcemia as a perineoplastic syndrome. Um, the really cool part about this is when they have surgery and remove the tumor and remove those lymph nodes, that hypercalcemia usually resolves within a couple of days. 
So if you yep. get that cancer out, so even if the symptoms um, were not great <laughs> and they were really PUPD, just by having surgery, we can go ahead and get that taken care of. So even if they're not going to go forward with anything else or like say there are mets in the lungs, but the people just want some more time, they can absolutely move, remove that and it can alleviate some of the symptoms to be able to, to give them that at the end there. So surgery is going to be our number one for this. Like just get it out. <laughs> it cracks me up when I like walk past in our surgery suite. Cause because of how the suite is positioned, our window is like facing like everything. And so there's always like this, butt just like up in the air. And I'm like, Oh, you must have an anal sac tumor. Got it. With the tail, like tapes mm-hmm. out yeah. of the way. And you're just like, Oh, yep. Got a little purse string going on and a bald butt. <laughs> right? Oh my gosh. I know one of our surgeons, um, oh gosh, it was a boxer. And he was like, that was softball size. Now he was an amazing, Ooh. he should have been just an oncological surgeon. He really like loved those and was amazing at them. Mm. My dog had no problems afterwards, softball nice. size. And he got all of it. Actually. He goes, I don't think I got wow. it all, but I at least, and that dog had like no problems going to the bathroom, everything healed. Nice. Dogs are amazing. I mean, yeah. honestly, if you told me you're removing a butt mask from me, I would have some issues with that, <laughs> but dogs don't know or care. They're just like, they're like, oh, they don't right? have the what psychosomatic happened? stuff, right? whatever. <laughs> they're probably like, yes, I can poop now. <laughs> um, and so after surgery, once we are recovered from that, then we can do the other types of treatment. And so you mentioned electrochemo. And like I said, they, it can be used for this, especially if they aren't removable too, they can do that. Or if it had dirty margins, there's anything left behind. Mm. Um, I honestly know very little about electrochemo. It was getting so much bigger um, before I jumped into the training part of my blog versus <laughs> clinically doing it. And I was at a practice that did it, but it was the other oncologist and the other team that did it. Uh, so I would only yeah. hear about it. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's kind of crazy. Like, have you, have you seen it? Mm-mm. You haven't even mm-hmm. seen it? Yeah. No. It's, it's crazy. So for those of yeah. you listening that don't know what it is, so we're talking about electrochemotherapy and it's where we actually take a chemotherapy agent, um, and inject it into a tumor and then actually deliver an electrical shock to that tumor and, or an electrical stimulus. And the whole fault process behind that is that the electrical stimulus is going to cause breakdown of the cell wall, allowing for better penetration of that chemotherapy, um, within to the, within to the tumor. Um, we used to, I, I, I saw these at LSU many, many moons ago and my, horror story because <laughs> you have to tell a horror story right my one experience yeah. that went really really badly was a sublingual uh, squamous cell carcinoma and a golden retriever oh, no that I we were treating i know where this is going uh-huh. um uh-huh. and unfortunately this was probably in the early 2000s before we really had dosing for these really worked out with our electrical units Um, And so injected our bleomycin, which is typically the chemotherapy we use, um, bleomycin or cisplatin, cisplatin is a whole nother conversation, Um, but injected that and then put in the electrical stimulus. Well, when they delivered the electrical stimulus, you guys, this dog levitated 
off the table. And when he came down, he bit oh. on his tongue and lacerated his lingual artery. So, <gasps> lingual like he's like, I'm just gonna do it like uh-huh. all the way. So oh my here God. I was running down the hall to get a surgeon um to come down. Of course, the surgeon came, sewed up the dog, dog was fine. Um, wasn't the best thing oh. uh, from a chemotherapy safety standpoint. Uh-uh. Um <laughs> Uh, but the dog actually ended up doing, doing quite well and had a pretty decent response. But, um, that was my first experience with ECT. Uh, luckily they Your got first much, experience. Much, my first experience. Luckily they got much, much better after that. Um, and Chelsea Tripp, who's an oncologist up in the Seattle area, does a whole lot of this, a whole lot of ECT. Um, yeah. and she's kind of my go-to person if I have questions about it or, um, she's, she's certainly one of the gurus, but yeah, lacerated lingual artery. No boy. Bueno. Uh, no, yeah. no. Um, I, I, <laughs> well, we've seen it where, um, because it is electrical, right. And it's mm-hmm. like your muscles, mm-hmm. your muscles work with electrical impulses. <laughs> so we've definitely seen things where like people get smacked by a foot hitting them. So does um, your heart oh yeah yeah and and um especially in the mouth right like the the bite because like they the muscles work muscles do what they're supposed to do yeah and i can and you can always tell like who has electrochemotherapy because we use like the two prongs mostly i don't know what they're called but it's like a blade and uh you can see like the the, i call them the grill marks because it's like they just kind of have grill marks on them but i mean they yeah (laughs) but they've done really well with it which is kind of crazy because um one of our doctors has used it now oh it's probably been at least five or six years if not a little bit longer i remember when we got it and and i was like you're doing what (laughs) but yeah i mean and and, you know they're anesthetized for it because you don't want (laughs) to You don't yes. want to shock them while they're awake. This is not an awake chemo. So no. that's, I remember that, that my team had started it like six years ago and that was before the dosing, like the electrical. Oh yeah. So not fully asleep, yeah. got kicked. They would come down. I was always working with my doctor at this exact same time, but they were like, we need more gowns or we need more, some, we need some extra PPE because things and I went, oh, oh going well today. Oh. He's like, I don't want to talk oh, about no. it. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. it's one of those from a safety standpoint. We'll certainly touch on it in the safety lecture. It is uh, doing ECT or any type of intralesional. It's tough when it comes to the safety. I standpoint. can't. I can't wait for the safety one because I have an amazing story for you guys. Um, is it gonna? Is it gonna it's... give me angina? <laughs> is it gonna? Is it gonna make me want to pass out? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, for, for an oncologist uh, or oncology person, probably, because I was like, what just what happened? Oh, boy. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> I, look, I look forward to it. Um, yes, electrochemotherapy. Then... It's cool. Like, I mean, definitely, if, if you don't work in oncology or work with someone who does it, it's it's very interesting to learn about because it's it's like one of those unique therapies that you go, huh? Holy moly. (laughs) Absolutely. And I mean, you know, we've got other tricks that we can pull out for these guys. 
Um, funny enough, NSAIDs can be used um, with metronomic chemotherapy because inflammation does play a pretty big role in that area and helping to keep things uh, under control and keeping them comfortable and keeping that quality of life up. And then radiation is another big one, especially, mm. I mean, Jenny's going to get all into that because we all know that she knows far more. However, <laughs> I actually did treat one of these um, and it had meted to the sublumbar lymph nodes. We could not get good margins. These people were all in though. So of course we had done everything pre, of course uh, we were also hypercalcemic. I mean, Yes, absolutely. Right. So that, that resolved after our surgery. And then we did radiation because we had dirty margins. And so they actually radiated where the sublumbar lymph nodes and the mass had been. And then we followed that up with chemotherapy. That dog lived for quite some time. I honestly can't remember the time, but it hit all of the things except electrochemo because I actually don't think that was a big thing in veterinary medicine. When I did this, it was, a minute ago. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So I'll have Jenny, you can definitely tell us more about the radiation. Cause I just knew that I was doing it. I was the anesthesia test. Let's be honest. <laughs> well, they needed you there for that to happen. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, radiation is a, such a cool modality. I, we could have a whole talk just on the benefits of, of therapeutic radiation, uh, but radiation therapy is widely utilized to help clean up or, or, take care of dirty margins. Say we have a tumor that isn't completely respectable and they have microscopic disease remaining. We can certainly use external beam radiation therapy to um, kind of tidy up that, that surgical area. We typically also include those sublumbar lymph nodes, whether they are diagnosed as metastatic or not. Um, because it is so difficult to get good sampling of a lot of those lymph nodes, just to go ahead and, and treat them in the, in the radiation field, um, a lot of times is, is what they're going to do. Now, the way that we treat these patients is going to depend on the machine and uh, energy and type of the facility. So depending on what type of machine they have is going to dictate how many treatment, what the total dose of, the, of that radiation treatment is going to be. We have seen these tumors be extremely highly responsive to radiation therapy, meaning they actually respond quite well. And they can respond to our palliative courses of radiation as well as our definitive courses. Palliative courses of radiation are intended to, um, to decrease pain, to potentially decrease tumor size, but are not intended to cure that disease locally our definitive courses of therapy are intended to put that patient into a local remission. So two different intents of therapy and the intent of therapy is also going to dictate how many treatments are in that therapy program as well. So we see the same benefit clinically from both of those schemes of treatment. So when we're going for a curative intent or if we're going for a palliative intent, we've seen very highly response, um, high good response rates to both of those. We can see some side effects with radiation, um, especially to the butt. Um, you know, radiation yeah. is my first love um, and treating any type of tumor with radiation is my favorite, but I can honestly say that radiating butts um, was tough. Um, and it's tough because of the toxicity that we cause, right? Imagine a third degree sunburn on, on your butt, right? And so Ugh. we can't tell them, you know, don't scoot, right? Don't chew. I, you know, I know that feels good, but uh, please don't do that. Yeah. 
Um, and so it's very hard to keep them from, and it's not even just the self-mutilating with themselves, but the scratching, right? And the scooting um, because they're trying to itch that area. So in my experience, depending on what type of radiation scheme you're going to do for that tumor is also going to help indicate how bad those side effects are going to be. And that's just a really common conversation that radiation oncologists are going to have with those pet parents. Um, they're going to be very open and honest and say, Hey, radiating the butt, it's not the best place, but we know if we get through this period of time, we can live long and live well. So treatment in that area certainly can be a little bit more difficult as far as the toxicity goes. Um, that short-term toxicity is going to be things like colitis. So anytime the colon is going to be in the radiation field, we can see some diarrhea, um, some colitis associated. We can also see those skin side effects. So like a sunburn, a third degree sunburn. But one of the other problems we can see with radiation to that area is radiation therapy needs to what we call spare a lymphatic strip. So think about a limb, right? And if we had a tumor that was encompassing the whole circumference of that limb, we cannot irradiate the entire limb because it will cause a stricture. So basically it causes that tissue to stricture down, which would then cut off blood flow to that, to that, uh, to the distal part of that extremity. So what we have to do is actually spare a piece of tissue that's not included in the radiation field to allow for that lymphatic flow. Now, imagine we have an anal sac tumor that wraps pretty much around the anus, right? It's much harder to spare any of that because we could be sparing tumor cells. But if we don't, we can actually cause a stricture, a colonic stricture. And if that happens, it's not good. Um, we, we have a very yeah. difficult time fixing that. We can go in and balloon those. Um, I had a patient that we treated, um, Shorty Beal, um, and this patient developed a colonic stricture secondary to radiation therapy. We were able to balloon it a couple of times, but quality of life there is just not that great. Um, so again, that stricture right. is something that can happen, you know, if we aren't um, being able to spare a piece um, for that lymphatic flow. Um, but other than that, <laughs> um, that, that sounds like a lot, but they can actually do really, really well. Um, this is the ones that we put in little pants or boxer shorts or little onesies, right? We want to yeah. dress them up in clothes <laughs> to keep them off of their, their hiney, um, just until they through the radiation. But once they get through that part, they're going to heal up beautifully. How long does the radiation usually take? Like, are you talking weeks, months, like, so it depends. That's a great question. It depends on the course or the indication for treatment. So our definitive courses, it also depends on the energy of the machine. So there are right. some machines that can do things like stereotactic, which is anywhere from one to three treatments. Um, your typical linear accelerator that most facilities are going to have, their definitive mm -hmm. courses are going to be anywhere from 16 to 19 treatments. And so that's Ooh, either going wow. to, that's typically daily. Monday through Friday until they finish that course of therapy. So they're getting oh, anesthetized wow. every single day um, and getting treated daily. That's our definitive or intent to cure locally to a local remission. Now our palliative courses of therapy are going to be much larger doses of radiation given over larger intervals. So once a week, 
for four weeks or Mm. twice a week for two weeks. So, and the reason that we do that is because it has been documented and we know for a fact that the amount of radiation that we give per fraction is each treatment is what we refer to as a fraction. The higher the dose per fraction, the more likely that patient is going to develop secondary side effects. The lower dose per fraction is that yields a lower possibility to those side effects. So even though our intents are different, we can certainly see different side effects with each different intent. If that, does that make sense? Are you following me? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, but I mean, again, what getting them through that, that treatment period, once we get them through it, um, they can heal up and do really well, but those are really frank conversations I have with my pet parents. When they start butt radiation, we have a really frank conversation that it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. I just need you to hang in there with me. Uh, and these are the things right. that we're going to have to do to make sure that, um, we, we get that area healed, um, and to keep the pet off of that area. Nice. I could talk about radiation. <laughs> you know what though? I love that, it. It's even okay because that is honestly one of the most effective treatments for Agasakas. Um, because yeah. when we start to now, most cancers, you know, like we're like, well, chemotherapy, we're going to get it to win it. But <laughs> it's actually uh, a little bit more controversial with these tumors because they do respond to chemotherapy but it has not really improved survivability. So while yes, it can reduce that, they still live about the same amount of time, um, although their symptoms could be less. And so, but it's not really buying more time. Whereas radiation does actually work and can give a local cure. So we can definitely have those conversations. Uh, In the past, what we've used for chemotherapy is mostly mitoxantrone. That's our blue thunder. That's the the pretty blue stuff. (laughs) If anyone has ever seen it, I love it. It's so pretty. Um, It's almost black in color and we dilute it to this really pretty blue, but it creeps people out because it's going in a vein and it's that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And then the other one is carboplatin. And both of those are given usually um, anywhere from four to six treatments. Uh, once every three weeks. So there's not a big difference between the two. Honestly, it is usually oncologist preference on which one they might start with potentially. Although I do know that mitoxantrone is usually used first. Now I did find a recent study though, on the use of tocerinib, which is palladia, because if you didn't listen to the other ones, we're starting to try <laughs> palladia on everything, everything. Be- <laughs> yes. Because we were like, well, it works here. Oh, it works here. It works here. Let's just keep trying and see what we can do. So, um, it showed benefit in over two thirds of patients. So that might actually wow. get to be one of the frontline treatments for this tumor. Um, and that is given, it can be every other day. They found that, uh, they get some wicked diarrhea if they don't get like a mini break. And so most of us give it uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then they get like a two day break. Uh, but we do have to continue that it's for quite a long time. Um, I didn't get into the entire protocol for this, so I don't know how long they gave it for to see that benefit of the survivability. I was just excited to see that they have started to study it and that they're going to continue so that we can hopefully see some more for that because that'll be great. Um, (laughs) and that is an oral chemotherapy that they give at home. So they don't have to keep coming into, um, the vet hospital for that. And so it's a great option for those kids that just mm-hmm. don't do well in, in clinic. I mean, right. we do tell them they have to come in 
sooner in the beginning, right? Because we do have to make sure that we're not having any side effects that we're tolerating the chemo and that it's working. But usually once you have those um, first couple that are like, I, we used to space ours out every two weeks um, for a couple. And then we could start to do monthly as long as they were doing okay. And we didn't see any recurrence. Um, Cause some of the stuff that we would definitely tell them to watch for if they were hypercalcemic before is a return of those symptoms can be one of the first signs that they notice mm. that the tumor has recurred. So that is a big one. Or if they are on something like platy, or it is several weeks before they come in again, as soon as we really have to educate them to make sure that they know if they start to see any sign of that, they can either get in with their, their regular vet quickly to have some blood work done and have a physical exam done. Or usually if they call us, we can get them in relatively quickly. Cause we know also that that could be something that happens. But right. when we, we talk to them when they go home. So Jenny talked about all of the things that they talk about with radiation and it is a really frank conversation. And we have to, we have to walk that really fine line between scaring someone and just getting them to understand what is what is going to happen. And then what's right. going to happen after, because it sounds horrible and scary. Um, except that it's such a short period of time versus what they can get, but some just cannot put their precious baby through that, which we understand. So it's yeah. really having those great conversations with them. And again, the quality of life versus fixing it. Um, this is one that we can fix for at least a short period. Well, not even a short period of time for a dog. That's a pretty long period of time. Right. Something yeah. years is, is pretty good. Uh, so especially since it happens in older animals, if they do this, like it probably, it might be something else like this one might not be the, the thing that, that does it. Gets it. Them in but, the end. Um, and then when we start to look at what's going to happen in the future, if it's coming back or even just things in the beginning, people have a really hard time differentiating. I, I know, you know, this in internal medicine, you have to between <laughs> constipation and diarrhea, right? Oh so my whether God. or not we are impacted or is it because we're having so much diarrhea, right? Because they're always like, are we we're straining? We're like the, the straining, yeah. right? Yeah. I, I feel like you, cause they always say, Oh, they're constipated. And I'm like, is it straining? Mm. And they're like, well, yes. And I was like, okay, is there stool ever produced? Yes. Is it liquidy or is it hard? It's liquidy. Then you got diarrhea and straining, right. not constipation. Or I don't know yeah. because it's in the yard and I'm not going out there to look, but they're <laughs> straining. So it's gotta be they're not going because I didn't see any. And those are very different therapies. Very different. <laughs> Absolutely. But or I mean, you could have the paradoxical one too. And and when you were talking about like um defecation and, and if the tumor is big, you mm -hmm. can see this. It's weird. We don't see it super frequently. Like there's a hard fecal ball, right? That's mm -hmm. being held up by an anal gland tumor but they're having diarrhea around it because stuff needs to get through. So you kind of, you have that option right. <laughs> as well. And trying to explain that to clients, you're like, well, okay, but you got both. <laughs> so I feel I'll like give them, really I'll give them the benefit of doubt. Right. Sure, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why we like to explain the difference to them. So that way they can know what to look for for yeah. those. Um, it's really fun when surgery figures out why 
they might have been straining and no, oh. you know, because yeah. there's something there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They love you <laughs> a lot for that. There's usually a lot of I'm going to buy you lunch happening uh, after that one. So nice. this is absolutely yeah. our fault because we sent it to them to take care of. <laughs> Um, but yeah, well, and I think this is like the fecal score chart, but if mm. you don't use them in your clinic, this is a good reason to do that because they can just point to the picture instead of having to describe it. I have never used that on a parent. Actually, that's kind of, that's definitely oh. an IM thing. We use it in the hospital, yeah. um, to write yeah. the, it's, we use the Purina one. I don't know if anybody else does, but man, yeah. we have it on every freaking wall. So that way you just put what number it is. Um, and if yeah. you don't know that off the top of your head, you just look up, but I never <laughs> thought to have a pet parent. They would we have them. Like, we have a poo. Yeah. Chart. We have them in our exam rooms, like just in the drawer. And if they, especially if they say constipation and, and like, cause some people get squeamish and they don't know how to describe it. Mm-hmm. And you're like, just point to the picture. I got you. Um, cause you know, I equate things to like soft serve yogurt and some people really get squidgy about that. So <laughs> It's always fun. I'm not gonna lie. When I, whenever I have things, I honestly, I love clients and I love like parents describing things to me because <laughs> yeah. they get really creative, insanely creative. And while we like to liken it back to food, they don't always do that. No, um, or no. if they do, they apologize first. Like you might actually be grossed out. <laughs> I actually, <laughs> I have, I, I always apologize and I go, I I understand this may be kind of weird, but soft serve yogurt and they go, yes. And you're like, I got you. (laughs) I mean, it's way more fun to do to coworkers to be like, oh yeah, no, it totally looked like what you're eating right there. That's exactly Uh what I just saw. You're like, you're my best friend. But I'm going to keep eating it. (laughs) Right. Oh yeah. No, we're not stopping. We got the five minutes to eat it. We're going to eat it. Doesn't matter what you told me it looks like for sure. Yep. (laughs) Um, and then, I mean, honestly, for these guys, once they go through their treatment, it's just follow-up monitoring. So watching for those hypercalcemic, um, symptoms, even if they weren't hypercalcemic before they can be, if it recurs, it doesn't Mm. mean that it won't happen. So even letting them know what those look like and then just following up once we're done with treatment every so often having rectal exams done, and they can have this if they're far more comfortable, if they're uh, a ways away from you, their regular vet can do this as well. So that's when we really partner with them and make sure that they know what they're coming in for. And the doctor told them, of course, all the treatments that have been done and here's what we're looking for. So they can keep following up with them if they're far more comfortable. Um, we have had several that do that. We used to have one, she used to, I loved this dog. They would schedule a drop-off for her, for her rectal exam. And she would drop off at like eight in the morning. Well, sometimes the doctor was ready and available. And so sometimes she had to stay. And sometimes we were like, she's good to go. She gets to go right back home. Um, But they loved the option that for us, they could drop her off um, on their way to work and then pick up after. So that way um, we spoiled the heck out of her all day. Her name was Bella. (laughs) So stinking cute. I love that dog. Um, And I don't, I do not remember if it ever recurred. I don't, I don't think it did. It was something like, she was good nice. to go. And then she lived her life happily away from oncology. So, which was great for her, but we always want to make sure that we give them all the options. Right. So that they yeah. can do surgery. What happens if they don't do surgery? So if they decide that mm. they can't, 
or don't want to, or it's too big, then we make sure that we're taking care of those symptoms, right? So the, the other medications that we can do like lactulose to be able to soften the stool, to keep it passing through, yeah. um, for as long as they can. Um, and just making sure that we keep them nice and comfortable. The anti-inflammatories do a, a pretty good job because those tumors can make down there. Things can get kind of angry kind of quickly. So we would Ugh, definitely yeah. want our NSAIDs to go ahead and help take away some of that inflammation as well. That's, that's the big things with that one and owners. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and then we start looking at some of the cautions related. And I love that we call these cautions because um, it's made <laughs> me think about it differently. Um, and I really tried to lump this one into tumor related cautions and then our treatment related. And so our mm. tumor related, when we think about this tumor, obviously things like obstruction, right? And that's those owner's call and is he, you know, he's outside straining. Is he really straining? Is he really truly obstructed? Because if we're truly obstructed, that is a dire medical emergency, right? Mm -hmm. um, and also the hypercalcemia. Are these patients hypercalcemic? Um, how do we make that hypercalcemia go away? Just like Danny said, we treat the tumor. Anytime we have a perineoplastic syndrome, the way to correct the syndrome is by treating or removing the tumor. As far as our treatment related cautions, uh, that's going to be you know, with our chemotherapy administration safety. Again, we're going to have a whole safety talk. So we're covering all <laughs> of that in, in that one. Um, and then our radiation treatment toxicities that we talked about as well. So that skin uh, inflammation, as well as potential colitis, and then maybe something like a colonic stricture if we didn't have appropriate radiation um, to that area. But other than that, um, you know, really the big ones, tumor related, treatment related, making sure that we don't get those obstructions, uh, either from the primary tumor or from our lymph nodes that uh, could be affected as well. Yeah. And honestly, one of the other cautions too, is if they are not treating, if they're using pain medications, if we're going to our stronger pain medications to make sure that they're feeling comfortable, those can often cause constipation. And so trying to make Great it whether point, Danny. Yeah. side yeah. effect from a medication or is it actually the tumor? And so that's usually when an exam is going to be warranted and perhaps changing up medication, not taking off entirely because of course their quality of life is like, can they live without the medication for a little bit? Yes, no. So we can differentiate yeah. or is it already that quality of life is just deteriorating? Yeah, definitely. So my tip of the week, um, every dog with a butt should have a rectal exam or the only other excuse why you shouldn't do a rectal exam is if you don't have fingers. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. And, and I think you kind of talked about it is, um, don't assume someone has done a rectal exam. We unfortunately had a patient that was hypercalcemic and, um, it's the tip of the week. We're like, oh yeah, of course that rectal got done. Cause that person always does a rectal. And then when they, um, kind of rolled everything else out. And one of my doctors was like, wait a second. And she went through the record and she was like, wait, what? And then she did the rectal and she was like, all right, well, this is a completely different conversation that we're having with a client. So just don't, don't assume that a rectal has been done. And if you feel something funny, let your doctor know so we can investigate it further. I mean, I do like that. You said never assume. Uh -huh. I like it's been done. Eh, but um, bum. 
That's right. Don't ask you. We're, we're getting good at we're getting good at this. Right? That's the second tip of the week. Don't <laughs> assume. <laughs> that should be a tip every week because right? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> tip, tip of the year. <laughs> I mean, Ooh. I know why. Have so- you found Agasaka on a patient? Because I definitely have. I was a baby tech and I was like, I am having a really hard time expressing these anal glands, which looking back at it now, I probably should have stopped earlier, but I was baby <laughs> tech and I was like, like still learning how to express anal glands. And I'm like, why is this not? And the doctor was like, Ooh, and I'm like, Oh, <laughs> uh. and now for the question of the week. Because we didn't obviously we have to treat the tumor, but if they have really severe hypercalcemia, what drug can we use to help treat that? Excellent question of the week. Because it's it can be used on emergency, it can be used in internal medicine. Any anytime you see something with severe hypercalcemia, there is a specific class of drugs that we can use. To treat that. This is what true. And this be? is an internal medicine podcast. So there better be an answer to this people's right. out there. <laughs> Cause we know the answer, but let's see yeah, if everybody that, else can do it. <laughs> good question. That was a good one. That's, I actually uh, saw it used on a, a puppy, uh, you know, cause puppies ate a oh. whole bunch of AD ointments. And oh, the AD. Uh, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. So it got all sorts of hypercalcemic. Plus, you know, the other things that happen, but they needed to do it quickly because it was really clinical for it. So. Yeah. Oof. Oh, yeah. we'll ask another. Can we do two questions of the week? Of course. I th- Wait, can we have them? Can we can we give bonus points for people that list the differentials for hypercalcemia? Oh, yeah. That's a great internal medicine. Like, yeah. Yeah. So differential list for hypercalcemia. Go. Please include Agasaka. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Cool. I like it. We got three questions this week. Have you found Agasaka on a patient? How do you treat hypercalcemia? And what's the differential list for hypercalcemia? I like this. These are smart ladies giving us smart questions. <laughs> All right. Well, cool. Anything else uh, Agasaka related that we want to touch on? No. Touch on? <laughs> Great. Now when I see you all, I'm going to start doing this. <laughs> you guys can't see it, but we're all putting our one finger up and wiggling it because that is the Agasaka Place your hand on it, pose. <laughs> I mean, if you've ever seen the shining, the little red rum thing, the old shining, I have no idea if it's in the new one, but he does that with his finger when he starts going red rum, red rum. It's really creepy if you like that movie. But that's exactly I, no, what we're I doing. would never have seen that. So I don't oh. associate that with it because I'm I, a chicken. I love Stephen King and okay. that just, but the little <laughs> kid does it. Uh, all right. Well, you guys. Have a wonderful week. Keep getting your learn on. Um, if you see these ladies in public, because they speak in a lot of places, definitely say hi. <laughs> the kittens. Oh, we got to leave on kittens. Oh, my God. I almost forgot. Jenny's got her kittens. Kitten meow. Great. 
and they're hungry too so uh oh little kitten oh my god they're so and they little. are covered in ringworms so just ignore all the ringworms oh, and god, if you see fingers. me at western just ignore my ringworms oh <laughs> oh my god <laughs> Uh, all right well thank you for kitten muse because those are always the best listen look at this poor kid oh oh, so sad oh my god kittens all right ladies have a wonderful week and um we'll talk to you next week because we're still talking onco um Bye, guys. Bye. Good night, ladies. Those are always the best. Listen, look at this poor kid. Oh, oh so sad. Oh, my God. Kittens. Oh. All right, ladies. Have a wonderful week. And um, we'll talk to you next week because we're still talking on go. Good night, ladies. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.